Hey, my name is Jay Warner Wallace, and I'm the author of Cold Case Christianity. I, I gotta tell you, if you're listening to this radio, you know you're in a good place, and I cannot endorse more highly the intellect and the passion of your host. So just enjoy this radio program. Is he a real one? Radio is the real thing. And Veda, thank you so much for doing the most important work of the kingdom. Hey, this is Greg Kokel, author of Tactics, a Game Plan for Discussing Your Christian Convictions and the story of reality, how the world began, how it ends, and everything important that happens in between. And you're listening to, is he a real one? (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't matter what it looks like on my end. Right, right. All right, well, all right, well, I'm recording now, and um, hello, everybody. Uh, It's it's Veda Hedgeman, and I'm here right now with Is He A Real One Radio, and I'm here with Dr. Michael Heiser. So... Heiser, um, before before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about uh, who you are, some of the great things that you've done? <laughs> I don't know if there's any great things I've done, but I can, oh. I can. Uh, you'll have, you can wake up your audience after I'm done here. Um, <laughs> now I'm I'm uh, currently scholar in residence with uh, Logos Bible Software. The parent uh, company name is Faith Life Corporation. It's in Bellingham, Washington. I've uh, been here 14 years. Um, before that, you know, and, and even during, I taught a lot, uh, biblical studies, uh, several schools online and in the traditional green campus. Uh, I did my my uh, graduate school work in Hebrew, Bible, and Semitic languages at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Uh, I got a, a master's and a PhD there. And before that, I had a PH or a, a master's in uh, ancient history with an Egyptology and ancient Israel focus from the University of Pennsylvania. But um, if there's anybody still awake, I guess that's good enough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm a scholar by training, uh, but I try to uh, write not just for the academic community, but, you know, for anybody who cares, really, uh, the non-specialist. And don't you also um, do work with the um, Logos softwares as well? Yeah, I mean, I, I I work there, but I'm not a I'm not a coder or anything like that. Uh, most of what I do is well, I write for the magazine, I write books, I write some reference content, I do mobile ed, uh, that sort of thing. So it, it varies a little bit from year to year. In the in the early days after I started here, we I supervised projects like reverse interlinears, our interlinear Septuagint. You know, things like that where I had to supervise scholars all over the world. It, was, it sounds fancy, but it basically was herding cats with PhDs. Uh, <laughs> they don't turn in work just like anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> all right. hey, hey, Dr. Heiser, I'm actually going to go um, grab my phone really quick. Cause sure. I may use some scriptures a couple times. All right. It's just easier for me to pull up the scriptures on this opposed to flipping through pages. So, all right. So, I want to start off. Uh, I want to start off a little bit um, asking you about Psalms eighty-two. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I want to read a little bit of Psalms eighty-two and explain um, to the people. Um, so, essentially, right, for those who are listening who may not know, you know, there is a somewhat common objection or thought testament or who followed the hebrew text mm-hmm. that they believed in multiple gods they they weren't um a part of that they didn't believe this monotheistic 
religion that Christians or even Jews today um, would believe. And mm -hmm. they say that partially based off of Psalm, Psalms 82. And I'm going to read a piece of it. And I'm going to ask you, Dr. Heiser, if you could uh, sure. um, give your response. So I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Um, and Word of God says, God presides over our heaven's court. He pronounces judgment on the heavenly beings. How long will you hand down unjust decisions by favoring the wicked? Give justice to the poor and the orphan. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Rescue the poor and the helpless. Deliver them from the grasp of evil people. But these oppressors know nothing. They are so ignorant. Where's the part I'm looking for? Here we go. Verse six. I say, you are gods. You are children of the most high but you will die like mere mortals and fall like every other ruler. Mm -hmm. So when you hear that, when you read that, and of course we're reading in English, this particular translation was the NLT. Mm -hmm. Can you explain to me if the Jews, the psalmists, did they believe in multiple gods? Did they have a monotheistic doc doctrine? Yeah, there, there are several issues here sort of layered together and conflated. You know, let, let, let's be clear, and I mean, I'll just pick my way through it here. Yeah. You know, when, when we ask a question like that, what, you're, what I hear you asking is, did the biblical writers believe in one God or many gods, as opposed to Israelites generally, or Jews, you know, that, that, that kind of thing? Because not all Israelites believe the same thing about God. There's, I mean, the Bible itself gives us plenty of information about idolatry. Lots of Israelites were idolaters. They went off and worshiped Baal or, or some deity like that. So what we're talking about is, is the biblical writers. So that's, that's one point I think uh, your listeners need for clarification. The other issue is, you know, I'll ask it in a question. You know, how do we define monotheism? Uh, and and we, have a, we have an immediate disconnect between the modern mind you know, us as modern people in, in the West, uh, Christian West, or just the Western civilization in general, and the biblical writers. And, and, and I'm going to try to illustrate that. We are trained either by culture, by church, I think just we're sort of mentally conditioned that whenever we see the letters G, O, and D on a piece of paper, or a screen, our brain sort of defaults to this idea. And that is, oh, the letters G, O, and D speak of a unique set of attributes mm -hmm. that only one being can have. Okay. Right. So we are, we are just conditioned to think of these letters, G, O, and D, as having something to do with, and all these words are important, a unique set of attributes. That is not the way the biblical writers thought about the word Elohim, which is the Hebrew word that gets translated. Let me, let me just look at the NLT here. Uh, in verse 1, heavenly beings, Psalm 82, verse 1, and then in verse 6, gods. In both of those instances, and also in the first letter of the psalm, the first word of the psalm, capital G-O-D, all of those words, capital G-O-D, heavenly beings, and then small G-O-D-S in verse 6, they're all the same Hebrew term. It's the term Elohim. Mm. Uh, the NLT just translates them a little bit differently. Um, the Hebrew, again, the biblical writers didn't think that Elohim 
referred to by default a specific set of unique attributes. And you say, well, how do we know that, Mike? Are we just supposed to believe you because you have a PhD? No. No, you're supposed to look the word up. And trust me, if you're having trouble sleeping, this is a good idea. Uh, do it at night. <laughs> look up all the words, all the times Elohim occurs in the Hebrew Bible. It probably put you to sleep. But if you do that, you'll realize that, wow, you know, the biblical writers use Elohim of five or six different things, you know, that, that are not the God of Israel, the God of the Bible. That alone should tell you that they are not thinking about Elohim in terms of a unique set of attributes. Otherwise, if that's the way they thought about it, they wouldn't use that word right. of other things, especially in the plural. They just wouldn't do it. So we have an immediate disconnect because when we say monotheism, we are thinking about a being, one being, that is ontologically unique, unique by nature. We are thinking about one being that has a unique set of attributes. And since we're thinking in those terms, we say all the other gods don't exist. There can only be one. And biblical writers wouldn't articulate it that way. They would say, well, look, there's lots of Elohim right there in Psalm 82. You got a, a bunch of them and they're getting judged. I mean, the, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible is, is pounding them, okay, verbally pounding them because they're evil and corrupt and they sow chaos among the nations. So, you know, the, these other Elohim exist. Otherwise, God's talking to the air. Okay, otherwise, when the Bible says that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the God of all gods, it's just kidding, because there aren't any other ones. You might as well say he's the God of the Marvel Universe. Yeah, and that, that, was, actually one of my, that was actually one of my questions. So when the Bible says things like that, what is... It means exactly what it says. The, the problem is, is that Elohim has nothing to do with a unique set of attributes. All the term Elohim means, it, it's a term a biblical writer uses to label a disembodied being that is part of the spiritual world. It's all it is. First uh, Samuel 28, 13, it's the medium at Endor when she conjures up Samuel to talk to Saul. The biblical text actually has her saying, I saw an Elohim coming up out of the ground. And then Saul says, what did he look like? You know, and then she describes him and it's Samuel. And we know it's Samuel because the content of their conversation comes from other parts of the Old Testament that Samuel had said to Saul. I mean, they're, they're, it's, it's personal information. So that makes sense in a biblical world because an Elohim is just a member of the spiritual world that's by nature disembodied. It has nothing to do with other attributes. So, so what a biblical writer would believe is that there are lots of Elohim. Some of them are evil, some of them are not. There are lots of Elohim in the spiritual world. Yahweh is one of the Elohim, but no other Elohim is Yahweh. Mm. Why? Not because of the term used. It has nothing to do with the terminology. It's that this particular Elohim, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, gets described in ways that no other Elohim are ever described. And in fact, there are certain attributes that are given to that particular Elohim that are denied to all the other Elohim. 
So our theology as Christians and Jews um, is correct. There is only one of those. Okay, but you don't get that theology with the term Elohim. You get that theology by the way this Elohim is talked about. He is the one who created all the other ones. He is the one who's sovereign. He is omniscient. He is omnipotent. And these are very familiar theological concepts, but they don't derive from vocabulary. Okay? <laughs> they don't derive from the term Elohim. They derive, again, from descriptions that are found, you know, all over the place in the Bible. So a biblical writer, you know, if you walked up to Abraham, we'll say, and you said, hey, Abraham, are there other Elohim, you know, in the, in the spiritual world? He would say, duh, of course. You know, the, because the, the spiritual world has a, lo a lot of stuff going on in it. There's a lot of beings there, good or evil. And if you said, oh, okay, well, thank you. So they're all basically the same. They're kind of interchangeable. You know, they're, they're all, you know, pretty much the same ontologically. They're all the same attributes. You know, it's kind of a clique or a club. But they're, you know, they're the same, same group of guys. He'd probably just punch you in the face. Okay, <laughs> because that's blasphemy. It's like, no, 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 no. There's one particular Elohim that is the creator, and none of the other ones are. There's one particular Elohim that is sovereign and omnipotent and omniscient. The other ones are not. So, so let me try to put this in, um, ho hopefully, lay people's terms. So you mm -hmm. can correct me if I'm misunderstanding you. So, so the Bible speaks to numerous Elohims. Numerous beings, inhabitants of the spiritual world. Right. And that's how we would define an Elohim. Now, right. although there may be right. others. That's all it is. Yes be uh, others, but only one is omniscient, omnipresent, yep. and sovereign. And, yep. Right, because even uh, Deuteronomy 32, 17 refers to demons as an as Elohim. Elohim. Yep, the Shadim. You know, again, we the difficulty for us is that, again, we're working with English. Here you had Psalm 82, and you get three different ways of translating the same word, Elohim. Right. So we're working with English and we don't really realize the overlap that's going on, you know, in the text because, you know, we're reading English. And the other thing is, is we're just taught to think about that particular word, G-O-D, in a very narrow, specific way. But biblical writers didn't think about Elohim that way. They thought about Yahweh, the God of Israel, again, as the lone possessor of a specific, unique set of attributes. I, I like to say... For a biblical writer, there were lots of Elohim, but Yahweh, the God of Israel, was species unique. Well, There's me, only one of those. All right, so, so let me ask you this. So with that said, why do you think, why do you think Elohim is such a, uh, the, the word Elohim was so prominent in how we got the pronunciation Yahweh. For those who are listening or watching, you know, the way we get to Yahweh is because we have four consonants and we get the, mm -hmm. most people pronounce it as Yahweh because we put the E from Elohim and the A from Adonai. And that's how we get the pronunciation Yahweh, which translates in some languages to Jehovah. So if, if, considering everything that you're saying, why do you think... Elohim was so important to where that's how we would get, you know, um, the popular or most, 
one of the more known recognized names of God. Well, it, the the reality is is that the pronunciation, you know, either Yahweh or Yehovah or Jehovah does does not use the vowels of Elohim. It's a, it's a little more complicated than that. Uh, if your listeners are really into this, and again, if they're not, if they're still awake after looking up all the words of Elohim, they can go to Google and put in drmsh.com. That's my website. And then put in the four consonants, Y-H-W-H. Mm-hmm. And they'll find a, a page on my website where I, I talk about this in excruciating detail. Uh, Yahweh, the, the short version is you have four consonants and, and that becomes the proper name, the proper personal name of the God of Israel. Elohim is a common noun. It's not a proper personal noun. Now it gets used that way because people will refer to the God of Israel as God, okay, Elohim. But if you think about it, G-O-D is not a proper personal name, really. It's it's. Sure. It's a common name sort of used as a, as a term of address or something like that. Mm-hmm. So Yahweh, though, is a little bit different. Uh, that becomes the covenant name of Israel, uh, really from Exodus 3 on, uh, you know, the Moses, the burning, the burning bush encounters, where we get, you know, the, the, the beginning point of the derivation. Again, the, it's very complicated, but the short version is, is you have, when, when God says to Moses out of the bush, I am that I am. In Hebrew, that's eh, yeah. It's Aleph, Yod, He, or yeah, eh, yeah. Aleph, Yod, Yod, He. So even that's not Yahweh because it's, they're, they're, the one consonant's different. It's, it's the first person form of I am, of the to be verb which is Haya or Hava in most ancient Semitic. You can have a W there. If you switch it to third person, where you're referring to the being that, it, that addressed, that you know, said I am, then it would be Y-H-W-H. And, and the way we get the vowels as best we can, and then there's some controversy here. Okay. There's a short form of God's name used in the, in the Hebrew Bible, just two consonants, Yah, Y-H, and that's always with an A vowel. Right, right. Okay, so the, the, the issue is where does the second half come from? And that has to do with how verb forms are created in a specific Hebrew stem. So, you know, again, you're going to have to wake up your audience again. Oh, we're good, man. This but, is- <laughs> you know, that it, it, it's, it's a vocalization of a verb form because the name comes from the to be verb. And if, if you know a little Hebrew or somebody in your audience does, the, the neat thing is that that A-I, Yah, and then, you know, the, the E in Hebrew is, is, is referred to actually as an I-class vowel. It means he who brings into being, he who causes to be, or like he who creates or something like that, he who causes to be. And the reason it's a covenant name and, it, and it's connected with the burning bush incident is... God was telling Moses to go back and he was going to bring his people out of Egypt and essentially bring them into being as a nation. Now, not, not a group of slaves under the thumb of Pharaoh, not just a, a family, an extended family of Abraham, but he was going to make them a nation. And so he brings them, brings a nation out of existence, out of essentially 
nothing. I mean, it's a non-condition. They're a bunch of slaves. So that that is you know part of part and parcel of why God refers to Himself the way He does, and why the third person reference turns out to be Yahweh, He who brings into being. So it it doesn't have it's it's not derived from Elohim, but you know, there, there is a difference in the terminology. I mean, Elohim is still important because it is used as a way to address God thousands of times uh, in the Hebrew Bible. But the covenant name is a little bit different. Man, I have so many uh, questions. That That's great. I have so many questions, but I'm going to try to stay on focus on what, what we agreed to talk about. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but that's awesome stuff. Now, now um, can you help us understand this now? Uh, going back to Psalm 82, right? You know, mm-hmm. so in John chapter 10, mm-hmm. you know, and Jesus is accused of blasphemy. He actually quoted Psalms 82. Mm-hmm. So what was Jesus saying when he said that? When he said, it was written in your own scriptures that God said to certain leaders of the people, I say you are God's, you know, what, what was Jesus saying when he said mm-hmm. that? All right. for your, Again, for your listeners, two sources here. We actually devoted an entire episode of my Naked Bible podcast to this. So if your listeners go up to Google, you can put in nakedbiblepodcast.com, just the domain name, and then put in keywords like John 10, Psalm 82, Jesus, and you're going to find that episode. It'll, it'll come right to the top. The other place people can go is my website, www.thedivinecouncil, D-I-B-I-N-E, council.com. That's C-O-U-N-C-I-L. So the divinecouncil.com. And there's a paper that I read at an academic meeting on this. So I'll give you this, the short form again. If you notice, if you're reading through John 10, you hit verse 30. Okay, we, we, I, I'm just going to go there in the ESV. Because what, what Jesus is doing is kind of giving his enemies both barrels. <laughs> as he is wont to do on certain occasions. But in John 10, verse 30, it's a very famous verse where Jesus says, I and my Father are one. And if you look at the reaction that the Jews have in the next week, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. So that's important because when he says, I and my Father are one, they consider it blasphemy. Right. Okay. So keep that in mind. Then, you know, he goes down and, and he gets into this discussion with them. He's, Jesus is a little sarcastic, you know, for which of the works that I did are you going to stone me now, you know? Um, and then he quotes Psalm 82, verse 6. Now, following the quote, if you go down to verses uh, 36, 37, Jesus makes another kind of crazy claim. He says, uh, Verse 37, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So what you have is you've got, in verse 30, you've got a claim to deity. In verse 30, verses 37, 38, he hits him again with it. I'm in the Father, and the Father is in me. Another, it's another claim to deity. So I point this out because in the middle, I'll tell you what Jesus isn't doing first. He's not denying his deity. 
he's not making the people listening to him on the same level as he is. He's not backing off. And I mention that because what, what you'll find in commentaries is that people will say, well, you know, he quotes Psalm 82, but we all know that Psalm 82 is about Jews. It's not about divine beings. In other words, like Elohim isn't even there. Or they'll say, well, well those Elohim happen to be people. They happen to be the Jews at Sinai getting the law or the Jewish elders that were appointed by Moses in Exodus 18. They're just people. And so Jesus is saying, look, you know, I, I don't get mad at me for calling myself the son of God because you're the sons of God too. That was So let's all be friends. Right. That, that's a denial of the two things he says on either side of that quotation. Exactly. And that's baloney. You know why it's baloney? It, it, it's baloney because Jesus would not back off, and they don't take it that way. So the, the explanation that is often offered in, in evangelicalism, very plainly, that is not the way the Jews in the scene are taking it, because they want to stone him both before and after, they, they're, they're, they're upset. They, why would they be upset if Jesus is saying, look, we're all one big happy family and you guys are the children of God like I am? And that is not the way they're hearing it. What, it. what Jesus is actually doing is he says, okay, fellas, you're a little ticked off that I said, I and the Father are one. Doesn't your own scripture say and then he quotes Psalm 82. And they know what Psalm 82 says. Right. They know it's Elohim in the text three times in the psalm. Mm -hmm. They know what's going on. So when he takes them to, to verse 6 and says, I said, and the speaker in Psalm 82 is God. God's speaking to the other Elohim. God says, I said, you are gods. Okay, all of you. Sons, plural, of the Most High. What that means is that the sons of God, son, you know, you know, the Most High is God. Okay, that's not a brain teaser. So sons of God are Elohim. If you go over to Psalm 89, the, the, the council of the sons of God is in the skies. It's in the heavens. This is, this is the spiritual world. This has nothing to do with a bunch of Jews running around on earth. Okay? They know their Bible. They know that well. And Jesus calls them gods. So what, what's his point? He's saying, look, fellas, there is precedent in your own Bible for the idea that sons of God or a son of God is more than a man. You know that. So that's point number one. When I refer to myself as the son of God, there is in your own scripture a passage. There's actually more than one, but he goes to Psalm 82. There's a passage that says, Son of God and sons of God means more than human. And once he lets that sink in, then he follows it by saying, Oh, by the way, when it pertains to moi, okay, this Son of God, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. In other words, I'm not just one of those supernatural beings back there in Psalm 82. I'm not just one of the club. I am, I am the Father. 
Okay, right. I am the Lord of the council. Right. So you guys better buck up. <laughs> I mean, you better watch what you're saying. That That is the only way to read the passage and have Jesus be consistent throughout the passage. He does not deny his deity in the middle of two places where he affirms it. You know, Michael, it's, it's funny. I mean... I didn't have that. I, I was going to get to that um, to that understanding where he's like denying it and then saying that, that he's the father and everything. I was going to get there. So I'm glad you got there before I asked. But the way that you particularly broke it down with the understanding of um, Elohim and there's only there's there's only one omnipresent sovereign God and the way you broke that down and then broke down what Jesus said in John 10, 34, it actually makes it even more powerful. Oh, it, it's, it's very powerful. Yeah, it makes it even more of a bold statement, you know, because Jesus would say some really bold things. Like, you know, uh, you know I'm a former uh, non-believer. I was actually um, an agnostic leaning towards atheism before I got mm -hmm. saved. And when I wasn't a believer, you know, I, I didn't really, I wasn't really versed on the scriptures. You know, I kind of would just hear things about God, yeah. hear things about Jesus, you know, and I'm too, you know, I'm a former gang member and stuff. So I thought being a Christian, believing in Jesus, I thought that meant I had to be soft, you know, because I would just hear turn the other cheek and everything. Mm -hmm. You know, and when the Holy Spirit began working on my heart and I began to, um, the study of apologetics helped me a lot, but mm -hmm. When I began to really read the scriptures, I realized that Jesus is the boldest person to like, like, especially when you understand the historicity of what was going on in the times and who yeah. he was talking to. It's like it doesn't get no more bold and courageous he's, than that, man. He's, he's very confrontational. Very. <laughs> but I mean, he's, he's confrontational with people that he knows are impeding his work. And who are honestly, you know, disloyal to the father. Yes. They're, they're hypocritical. He, he goes after them. And, and in many cases, that's the leadership. I mean, he, he's very gentle with people who are trapped in sin. Uh, but like, like the woman at the well. I mean, Jesus is totally honest with her. You know, right. he's, oh, yeah, the guy you're sleeping with now isn't your husband either. And you got five of these. And, you know, I mean, he... he he, he tells her exactly where she's at, but somehow she wants more of it. <laughs> she, she goes and tells her friends, oh, you're not going to believe this conversation I just had, you know, and, and brings them back like to hear more. And she's not coming back to say, come on, tear me apart again. No, somehow he, he's honest with her, but he doesn't allow her to think that he doesn't love her. Mm. I mean, that that's very difficult to do, but Jesus had the knack mm. of being completely honest with people, telling them what they needed to hear, but also conveying the notion that, look, I'm, I'm here to help you. I'm not here to destroy you. That's a sermon right there, Dr. Yeah, Hyde. but, but when, it, when, it's, when, it's his, when it's the hypocrites, oh, he goes after them. Yeah. He, he, uh, he makes them look like idiots. Or, you know, or unfaithful. You know, now uh, I'm going to, when this, <clears throat> when this is posted, I'll actually have a link um, to one of the papers that you wrote, um, the, the one that you wrote to evangel the evangelical um, the 
Theological Society in 2010. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to have, because Dr. Heiser goes in great detail in this topic that we're talking about um, numerous occasions, but there's one paper in particular that I, you know, that I think has a lot of great stuff. But I'm going to ask you this question anyway, even though I know yeah. you use it. Um, now, some e scholars even, you know, I'm going back to Psalm 82 here. Mm -hmm. um, they, re they refer to that context as simply rulers, and you disagree with that understanding. Can you explain to us briefly why? Yeah, because Elohim doesn't mean rulers. There are other Hebrew words for rulers. If you actually go to, I mean, when they say rulers, they're, they're really going back to this notion that Israelite judges, the people who were appointed to help Moses, are called Elohim, Okay. That is actually false, and, and it's, it's easily falsifiable. Go back to Exodus 18. When I'm, when I'm presenting publicly, I have in, in my software, I have what's called a visual filter where I make, up, make all the places where Elohim occurs light up, and you can see how it's translated. Mm -hmm. uh, in the ESV, if, if you go through Exodus 18, Elohim is translated singular, capital G-O-D, yeah. every time except one, and in that one instance, the other gods are, are idols, you know, the, the, the false gods of the nations. My point is that in Exodus 18, the judges who are appointed by Moses are never called Elohim, not once. Um, you know, I have other articles on, you know, on my website and, and whatnot. There are some people who would go to Exodus 21, Exodus 22, to try to make the point that that the Elohim there are human judges and human rulers. Mm -hmm. You won't find that terminology there. Uh, the, the Elohim there is, is just fine to, to translate it like many English Bibles do, capital G-O-D. They bring their cases to God. They bring their causes to God. Um, it, capital G-O-D is, is a normal wording there. There's no need to see men as gods. Now, question in light of this same um, topic and I want to touch on the book of Enoch before um, before we get you out of here mm -hmm. but it, while we're on this um, Mormons they tend to say yeah. something that's similar but it almost sounds like it's a distortion it's like they take a piece of what you say and then make it something else can to your understanding can yeah, you say I, how I, I'm popular with Mormons until they find my article online Published in a Mormon journal critiquing their use of Psalm 82. Then I'm not so bad. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. But I mean, to, to, their, to their credit, I mean, the, the guys who asked me to publish that, and, and again, your listeners can find it. Just go up to Google and put in my last name, Heiser, and then the line, seen one Elohim you know, seeing them all, because that's the title of the article, and you'll find it. It's free uh, online. It's, um, there, you know, I, I have a, a Mormon, you know, friend at BYU, and he's still a Mormon, but he wanted, he came to hear a paper that I did on this at the Evangelical Theological Society meeting, and he asked if he could publish it, and I said, you know, as long as you make it clear that I'm not a Mormon, I'm, I'm fine, you know, because he, he thought it was a good challenge, you know, to, to what they think. And, and, and for your listeners, what the difference is, is Mormons will look at Psalm 82 and they will affirm the obvious. Okay, we've got a bunch of Elohim here in the spiritual world. All right, that, that's, that's transparently obvious. Mm 
But what they won't do is they won't ask the question. And of course, therefore, they won't produce the answer. To, they, they won't ask this question. Well, is one of those Elohim different than the others? Is one of those Elohim unique? Which would take us deeper into the... Right, right. They, they will assume that since the God of Israel is called Elohim and you got a bunch of Elohim, they'll assume they're all interchangeable. This is why Mormonism has Jesus and, and Satan being brothers. Right. You know, it's just stuff like that. And again, what, what they're not doing is they're not, they're not looking at passages. And I have a bunch of these, you know, in, in my book, The Unseen Realm, you know, that, that show how, again, only this Elohim is described in certain ways. Omniscient, omnipotent, all-powerful, the creator of everything. You, you can't say that. And the biblical writers don't say that about anybody else. Mm. So there is one that's qualitatively different, ontologically different. But Mormons don't, don't ask that second question. They will essentially proof text Psalm 82 for divine plurality, and then either assume that they're all just interchangeable parts, or they will intentionally not go there, because that undermines their theology. So, you know, that's essentially, if, again, if, you're, if your listeners go up and find that article that's published in the Mormon Journal, they'll, they'll see why, you know, what the difference is pretty clearly, because that was the purpose of the article. Yeah, and, and, also, uh, and also for those listening, uh, we have an interview with uh, Eric Johnson, who wrote the book, Sharing the Good News with Mormons. He goes specifically... Um, kind of touches on what uh, Dr. Heiser and I are currently talking about, and then it's geared specifically towards um, Mormonism beliefs. Really informative interview. I encourage you to check it out. So my last question on this particular um, topic is, so uh, I want to ask you about Isaiah 4310, mm -hmm. uh, where, you know, where the Bible says that, you know, there will be no other gods before mm -hmm. God, nor done after. So when he says that, is he saying that as it pertains to his omniscience and his uh, his everlasting, all eternal nature, is he saying that in particular? Like, what exactly? That that is implicit because he's the creator of all things. Now, catch the, the wording here. Okay. The Bible affirms that God is the creator of all things, visible yeah. and invisible. Mm. Period. Okay. So, since that's the case. There was no other deity around before God created all those other ones. And there is no other deity that's going to create any more. Okay, he is responsible for their existence. He, was, he is the lone pre-existent being. He is the lone uncreated being. So it's true. There wasn't any around before him. And there ain't going to be any new ones. Because he's the only one that, that can do that. And God has no intention of doing that. And we should expand this, this discussion. Again, if, if your listeners go up to www.thedivinecouncil.com, there's a paper there um, you know, that, that you know, can, can get into this. It's a, it's a technical paper. It's a, it's a journal article, scholarly journal, journal article that I had published. Um, it, it's entitled roughly... Um, you know, monotheism, polytheism, or henotheism, an assessment of divine plurality in the Hebrew Bible. 
And part of that article deals with what, what scholars call these denial phrases. There's none besides me, there's none like me, and all that kind of stuff. What these are, th these are not statements that no other gods exist because we've just gone through a couple passages that say they do. Right. You know, Deuteronomy 32, 17, Psalm 82, you, know, you, get, you, know, you, you get a bunch of these. What they are instead are statements of incomparability. And the, and the best way to, to prove that, and there's actually about a dozen different variations on this phrase, and I, I discussed them all in that article. The best way to show this is to take something Isaiah says and something Zephaniah says. In both books, in, the, in Isaiah, it's Babylon, and in Zephaniah, it's, it's uh, Nineveh. Those two cities say, there, is, there are none besides me. There's none like me. There's none besides me. It can't mean that other cities don't exist because that would be stupid. Okay? I mean, obviously Babylon's not going to say, I'm the only city that exists in the world, you know, because that's obviously falsifiable. Um, and neither is Nineveh. What they are saying is, we're the best. There's none like us. We are superior. Okay, and, and so we, we need to understand, we don't have a biblical contradiction here. Uh, in fact, if, if you go to Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 32, you have these phrases, there's none besides me, there's none like me, in chapters that elsewhere affirm the existence of other Elohim. And what, I'm, what I try to get people to see is, look, the Bible is not contradicting its, itself here. All of this is quite understandable if you take these phrases as statements of incomparability. There is only one deity, one Elohim, at the level you know, of the quality, ontologically. There's only one like the God of Israel. There are no others like that. So I want to um, you know, spend our last few minutes um, touching on uh, you know, some canonicity questions mm -hmm. that may arise. So, so you tell me how you respond to this. All right? So I'm saying, hey, Dr. Heiser. So... The book of Jude in the New Testament quotes the book of Enoch. Now, I am aware that just because a New Testament writer may quote something or reference something, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's uh, inspired by God. Mm -hmm. I understand that. Um, however, the book of Jude in particular, when it's quoting Enoch, it sounds like it's doing it in a form of prophecy. And prophecy can only come from God. So why is not why isn't the book of Enoch an inspired piece of work? And also why would Jude take something as prophecy from something that isn't inspired by God? Like what is your response to something? Well, I mean Jude does take a line about the Lord coming you know with his hosts uh, there. He takes a line from Enoch. But the fact that that the statement about God is going to come, you know, and judge the earth with his heavenly hosts doesn't mean that Enoch is sacred or canonical or inspired material. I could write that. The Lord's going to come someday with his heavenly, that doesn't mean that, that I've, I've gotten that idea from somewhere, you know, that like, or from God himself, like you know, it's inspiration. So the fact that, that a statement is made in a book doesn't give it by definition inspired quality now jude picks this line because it helps him communicate the idea 
You know, it's as simple as that. You know, I understand why this question get, gets asked, and I, and I think the qualification you made is actually pretty important. Um, that just because something is quoted doesn't make it you know, the source inspired. And all I'm saying is just because there's a line of, you know, something looking at the future uh, in the source doesn't make the source inspired either. Uh, plenty of other books that talk about the day of the Lord. Uh, you know, the writer of Enoch, I think very evidently, is thinking of something older than his own writing, namely Zechariah 14.5, where it says the Lord is going to come with his holy ones. I mean, that's, so he, Enoch itself is borrowing a canonical thought, and all Jude does is pick it up, you know, essentially word for word in that case out of the book of Enoch. So, you know, the, the fact that it exists in Enoch doesn't mean that, that that's inspired. But despite all that, what people need to realize, and I think, you know, you do because of your qualification, maybe your listeners don't, is that biblical writers quote from a lot of stuff and a lot of stuff you don't want to be inspired. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> you know, for instance, Psalm 74 draws directly on the Baal cycle and it does it to poke Baal in the eye because it takes something Baal is known for and glorified for and then attributes it to the God of Israel. Again, that's a slap in the face to Baal. That's why they do it. Psalm 24 does it. Psalm 29 does it. I mean, the biblical writers were, were doing this kind of stuff because their readers would catch their drift. They would know what the source material is. May I add a thought to what you're saying? Sure. Too? Also, you know, the, um, it, helps, it helps to understand. And I know for me, and I'm still learning every single day, but I know it really helped for me when I began to understand a little bit what was going on in the context of the time. Yes, it's good to understand that this is God's word. This is still for us even today mm -hmm. in 2018, 2019. Yeah. But but these these are written by human beings and they were writing to other human beings. So of course- At, at a particular to, time, yep. Yeah, you know, so there's gonna be a natural uh, element to it. So even in the Jude question that I just asked you when referencing the Enoch, mm -hmm. you know, he, Jude, was writing to people who were very familiar mm -hmm. with the writings uh, that were written in the intertestamental period. Mm -hmm. So like you said, although he was, uh, you know, referring to something that goes back even further than the writer of Enoch, which isn't Enoch, by the way, that's another thing. If, if someone's um, saying uh, this should be inspirational, it's, it's not even written by, you know, Enoch, you know, I can write something. And call uh, he's he's interacting with his old Testament too. Right. That's yeah. What Yes, exactly. You know, um, and I think it's I think it's natural and reasonable for someone to reference a piece of work that's actually referencing something that's even older. Mm -hmm. You know, especially well, here, if they're familiar with, if, especially if they're familiar the with profound, the profound the profound thought of the day. Okay, your listeners need to maybe maybe sit down if you're driving, pull over on the side of the road here. Okay, the profound thought of the day. Here it comes. Biblical writers read books. <laughs> they really did. They read stuff. Right. And the stuff that they read, they often found useful to express an idea or a point. Hmm. You know, they, they read books. And so I don't think Enoch is canonical, but I'll, I'll go even further and say, I don't, Personally, I, I really doubt that the question matters a whole lot. 
uh, because when you realize how what it would mean for you to be consistent. Well, I guess the bail cycle is inspired too. Let's put that one in there. You know, I mean, when you see these absurdities, I think it helps clarify what's going on. But at the end of the day, what doesn't matter is that we, we, you know, sort of wonder or we fight about, you know, this quoting, the writer quoting this or that. At the end of the day, we should just read the stuff that they read. Because if we did, we would be able to pick up what they're laying down a little bit better. We would just become more intelligent readers of the Bible. You know? and also, yeah, and also we, would, we wouldn't... See, the, I have this thing where I think that something is a really good question, but it's a really bad objection. Does that, does that make sense? <laughs> like, I think it's a great question. I, I, yeah. Awesome question. Ask that question. But when you stop and you say, nope, I have an objection. I don't think it's true because of this. And it demonstrates, you know, a lack of desire to dig a bit deeper. You yeah. understand? Yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. No, that's, that's very useful. That's <laughs> because because you'll, you'll run into a lot of people where that will apply, you know. And back to your other thought, you know, we, we do have to remember that the Bible, yeah, the Bible was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. It's a very important distinction. Mm. And so our, our job is, is to do what we can to try to, you know, bridge the time gap and the cultural gap, to, to try to be able to read the Bible from the perspective of the people that it was written to. And that takes work. You know, it's the four-letter word, work which a lot of people don't want to do that. They want it to be easy. They want it to you know, be the fault. Oh, everything's about Jesus anyway, so I don't need to think about this. You know. No, it, it takes work. If you really want to understand Scripture, you have to avail yourself of the tools and the, and the resources that we have today, and we have a lot of them. My company produces a lot of them. Um, and it, it is something you can do. It just takes a little bit of time every day. You have to get into the practice, the habit, you know, of, of you know, moving beyond, you know, just what's on the surface in, in your reading. And that, that's why they call it study. Bible reading is not Bible study. Those are two different things. Um, so it, it just takes work, but it can be done. Wow, that, that's good. That's good. Um, first of all, you know, you said a handful of things that I'm certain I'm going to say when I'm preaching by the way just have to, you know. <laughs> <Feel free. laughs> yeah you said a couple there's, things one there's, of them. No royal, one. there's no royalty there so <laughs> bible reading is not bible studying amen amen hey so now i haven't read um i've read a little bit of the book of enoch it's really really long you know mm -hmm. not to scare you i know we're trying to encourage people to study for our conversation i ain't trying it's to scare a lot you. of chapters but a lot of them are short too so okay okay but it, it, the the book of enoch has um a handful of like imaginative things as well oh, sure. yeah so so that would also help to um to to debunk that objection yeah. that 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 should be an inspired piece of work in the bible yeah i i, I really don't i really don't think we you know, Book of Enoch has like giants that are 300 feet tall and they're 3,000 feet tall, depending on how you, depending on what text, you know, manuscript you use. So it, it has, you know, stuff that's just completely outlandish, you know, in it. But, you know, it, it, it's still, 
it reflects the worldview of the time. It also reflects the worldview, of, you know, by definition, the, the, the biblical writers in terms of how they viewed, you know, heaven and hell and the afterlife and, you know, the ways they, they try to describe these things. And, you know, let's face it, you know, we're, we're actually, if we're honest, we're not a whole lot different in the way we talk about those things. Think, you know, think of it this way. Here we are, we live in bodies. We live in time and space. We have spatial limitations. Okay, how in the world are we going to describe a place that doesn't have time, that doesn't have latitude and longitude? There's no way we can do that. So we have to use terms of place and measurement and limitation and, and space and embodiment to describe a reality that we have no frame of reference for at all. And so, you know, books like, you know, that are written between the Testaments, Dead Sea Scrolls, Enoch, whatever, you know, the biblical writers sort of share the same ways of expressing certain ideas as those writers did, which is why they're, they're reading that stuff. And it, it becomes helpful, you know, to try to express certain ideas because, you're you're just so limited i mean god gives gives the writers information about a spiritual reality but then they have to describe it <laughs> having never been there or, or having having no no way to even conceive of, of what it is they're talking about they have to use human words yeah and humans live in bodies they live in they live in a world that has gravity and latitude and lot i mean it, it it's a tough task, but wow. this is why, you know, metaphor and symbol become important because that's the best you can do. You, 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 use, you use the language of analogy. It's the best you can do. You know, uh, you know, I'm not sure how familiar you are, you know, with the hip hop world, you know, but I'll, I'll often tell. I, I'm not. I know that shocks you, but. <laughs> yeah, that's really shocking, man. I saw a video of you in a cypher, man. You know, uh, you know, when you were kicking a freestyle, like you were in the. No, eight. no, no. That, went, that wasn't me. That wasn't you. <laughs> although, although, I'm in so many places on the Internet. That <laughs> somebody could have done something with that. Yeah. <laughs> No, but I always say uh, Jesus had bars because Jesus spoke in parables, you know, yeah. and it was metaphorical yep. and really impactful. And that's what um, recording artists or namely rappers, you know, often do. That's you know? what they do. Yeah, you know, so, uh, you know, and in fact, I think I'm using it and making an analogy when I'm saying that. But I always say, hey, Jesus had bars because Jesus had a way of communicating yeah. um, very, very, uh, it was an analogy, but it was also extremely direct and understand what he's saying. Yeah. I mean, we, we are fortunately not limited in one mode of communication to express an idea and neither was he. Awesome. Well, you know, I, that's about it. That's all we have for MC Heiser today. You know, uh, <laughs> I'll just say, yeah, I, I'll, I'll, I'll wait for the gif or some meme or something now, you know, just, right, right. <laughs> yeah, send so, it to me. Yeah. And, then I, and then I'll hope my kids never see it. <laughs> that's awesome. Stuff. That's awesome stuff. Well, you know, I literally, I know for me personally, I could literally, talk to you all day with a gazillion trillion um 
questions, but I won't. Um, I'm going to stay within the time and on the topic. And I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. And I'm very confident that anyone who clicks play or listen on this will enjoy it as well. Very grateful for your time, Dr. Heiser. Is there any last thoughts that's in light of what we're talking about or anything? You have a new book that came out on yeah, yeah, I have a book on, on angels. Uh, the, the title is Angels, and the subtitle is What the Bible Really Says About God's Heavenly Host. So believe it or not, you know, I had the bright idea of, of thinking this thought, you know, that, hey, wouldn't it be nice if we actually had a book that said stuff about angels that you could actually find in the biblical text? <laughs> I mean, well, you know, it, it's sad, but it's true. A lot of a lot of what uh, you know Christians think they know about angels is really passed down by tradition, right? Or filtered through tradition or pop culture. You know, so the the book tries to to get people back into the text. I mean, that, if if there's anything that sort of floats the boat here, it's trying to get people to pay closer attention to the text. That's what I want. That's awesome. So, um, and I'm sure if we Google your name or search on Amazon, we'll be able to find access. Yep. Like I mentioned, our link is that it's in the description. Hey, yep. but since we mentioned your book on angels, um, I actually have a short joke before I let you out of here. Sure. Do you know um, how angels greet each other? No, I, I, I know I'm being set up for something, but no. <laughs> Go ahead. Halo. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's bad. Okay. <laughs> yeah, my da my daughter sent that to me. You know, my daughter my, my daughter sent that to me and I never forgot it. It was pretty funny. Yeah. But but in all seriousness, um, Dr. Heiser, I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed you um sharing your soliloquies and your understandings of scripture. You spent many, many years and many, 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 many hours studying this stuff. So I'm glad that you're so willing because you've been doing a lot lately, man. You know, oh yeah. Do dozens and dozens of interviews, you know, for the book. But you know, that's that's just what what you do. And you know, I I just you know if I really want the people to have the content then I do. I want it to be useful. Then, you know, this is this is how it's done. You have to do these things. Hey, and you know, another reason why, well, it was a bunch of reasons why I wanted to interview you, but why I wanted to interview you on this particular topic is because when I heard the, uh, when I first heard the objection, you know, and I was like looking for an answer on YouTube or in some scholars who I heard of books or, you know, articles, it was hard to, eventually I found yeah. answers that made sense, but it was hard to find a response to this, you yeah. know? So, and I just... Well, there's a lot. I mean, my, the, the book I'm most known for is, is The Unseen Realm, mm -hmm, sure. which is, is, has done quite well. I mean, it's, I mean a Angels will, will cross the bestseller threshold, but, but long before that, Unseen Realm did. And it, I would encourage people to, to just go up to Amazon. I've got 850 reviews, and I think all but five are like five stars, you know. The, the ones that aren't, it, it, the book sort of sort of scared people because we're talking about stuff like you know what we're talking about today but what really motivated me was was guilt and that is there's a lot that goes on in the in the world of biblical scholarship in the evangelical community and even outside the evangelical community that it's really really very useful for understanding scripture but it never filters down to the average person in the church, the average 
person who would really, you know, want to learn something about scripture. And on the evangelical side, there is, there is a bit of skittishness mm -hmm. about exposing people to the Bible. I mean, I know that sounds weird, but I, I've actually had a pastor in my career tell me that there are just some things about the Bible that people shouldn't know. Wow. Wow. You know, it's like, sorry, but I disagree. Right. You know, and I, even, I just disagree. Yeah. You know, even me personally, I'm not, I'm certainly not the end all be all, but I know for me personally, I think it's because I wasn't always a believer mm. and in searching for answers to challenging questions actually, and finding answers actually mm. helped lead me to where I am now. You yeah. know, that's why if I don't know an answer today, you know, I, I'm confident, even if I don't know the answer, I'm confident that, you know, there, yes, yeah, so there, there, there's, there's nothing new under the sun. You know, nobody's going to come up with anything that's going to, you know, harm scripture or anything like that. It's, it, it's been around for a few millennia. It's done okay. Right. right. Um, you know, it's, it's not going away, but you, you, you got to know how to get to material. So what, like, what I try to do is, you know, Unseen Realm is an academic book. It's a Genesis to Revelation overview of, of biblical theology, salvation history, with a specific eye toward how the the supernatural realm intersects with the human realm. The, the small version, the light version of that is my book called Supernatural. It, it, there's no footnotes. It's just the core ideas from unseen realm, you know, for, for people who, you know, just want, want the information, but they don't want to wade through all the academic discussion. Sure. So e either one will, it will, again, it's not just marketing shtick. Uh, if you have the content of either one of those books in your head, you will never read your Bible the same way again. Mm. And I, I'm, I'm saying that because that's what happened to me. Mm. I mean, I'm a doctoral student rediscovering my Bible and I'm motivated by guilt because I knew most people who really would, would enjoy this will never get this material. Wow. Because church has become, you know, I like to say Sunday school should not be forever, hmm. but, but that's kind of what church has become. Jesus is your cosmic life coach. These are the same Sunday school stories, but now we have adult illustrations. And, it, and it, it, they're all, they're, there are people in every church out there that just have the intuition, the inkling that, you know, there's just got to be more to it than this. Hmm. Well, I'm here to tell you your intuition is correct. Okay. There is more to it but you have to sort of do some work to find information. And that, that's kind of what I've dedicated myself to doing, taking, you know, real scholarship, but making it decipherable to people who aren't going to go out and get degrees. Because it's, it's fascinating. Again, you, you rediscover your Bible. Um, there's so much in it that, you know, that it's just good stuff. It's just good stuff. And you know, I'm not saying that you thought the gospel was A and Mike says it's B. No, the, the gospel is, is the gospel. But there's just so much going on in Scripture that is so fascinating that people, people deserve to get it. We, sh we, we should not. I think, I think the average person in the pew is routinely underestimated mm. when it comes to their appetite for content and their aptitude for content. And I'm, you know, I'm sort of known for this little phrase, I'm, I'm not going to protect people from their Bible anymore. Huh. And I'm serious about it. I'm just not going to do it. Yeah. You know, I, 
people deserve content. Awesome. They just deserve it. That's awesome. Well, yeah, I'm grateful that we were able to have some content on Is He A Real One? Um, Dr. Michael Heiser, you know, uh, we appreciate you. Hope to be able to interview you again. There are many topics under the sun, you know, but as of right now, we're very grateful for this, um, for all that you've been able to share. Hope you have a very blessed day, my brother. Yep, thank you. All right, have an encouraging one. Yep, bye-bye.